Okay, lead us in, buckaroo. I'm going to start calling you that. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. This was a newsy week. Looks like we're going to have a debate on October 7th. It was announced late Friday night that Congressman Ted Budd and former Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley had agreed to a debate. And then this week it was announced that they're going to do that on October 7th and Tim Boyum will be the moderator. This will be our first opportunity to see Ted Budd on the stage talking about policy issues with a political opponent. And also Sherry Beasley, neither of them had a debate in the primary. Interesting. You're right. Yeah. So obviously Sherry Beasley being a chief justice, what is her debate style going to be? She has kind of this professorial aura about her. And then Ted Budd kind of has this everyman personality that being portrayed in his ads It'll be interesting to hear them rattle through the issues facing the U.S. Senate and issues here in North Carolina. We should have a watch party here at the office. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. All right. If anyone's interested in doing a watch party, let us know. DM us. We just might do that. Speaking of Bud, there was also an announcement this week that former President Trump will come to Wilmington to hold a rally for Bud this weekend. I imagine that the strategy is to get those Eastern North Carolina voters energized about Bud. Of course, Donald Trump has always been a huge attraction for Eastern North Carolina. Back in 2016, I think he attracted 10,000 people to Duplin County. But as I saw this news... I thought, if I'm Senator Michael Lee, the Republican down in Wilmington, who is in a fight to retain that seat, he's got to be a little nervous about President Trump coming to his district. I think it'll be interesting to see if Senator Lee shows up to that rally. Representative Ted Davis, pretty moderate. Any Republicans in that area? Yeah. John Hennett, who is a listener to the podcast. I know he's running against Deb Butler. I don't know if New Hanover County wants Donald Trump, but again, it's all about Eastern North Carolina and getting out those voters. So last week, we talked about a poll from High Point University. Gave us a lot of data points on different politicians and where they stood. This week, we had another interesting report about focus groups and how they identified politicians and candidates for office. I got this from Axios Raleigh. It appears that the focus group was run by Engageus, and they did some focus groups across North Carolina of only swing voters. Mm. What is interesting about that is they talked about their two top issues, and one is abortion, and two is inflation. So those are kind of the issues you're hearing about constantly. So that makes plenty of sense. But what I also saw that was intriguing in this again it wasn't a lot of people but zero of the people could name who bud and beasley are trying to replace in the senate and richard burr has been there for he's been in congress since 1995 and he's been in the senate for 18 years couldn't identify who they were trying to replace 
it said that these folks were, you know, as I said, passionate about abortion and inflation, but they had mixed views on gun control, student loan forgiveness, and the state of healthcare in North Carolina, so Medicaid expansion. Eight of 11 said they could identify Sherry Beasley, and four of 11 said they could identify Ted Budd. And then I saw on Twitter that Dr. Chris Cooper had tweeted that he did a similar poll in Western North Carolina earlier in the year, and only 39% of people could correctly identify that the Republicans had more seats in the NCGA and said, remember, a random guess would have been right 50% of the time. (laughs) I've been involved in some polling over my career, and... It's fun when you work with a pollster to throw in like just some random questions just to see what people think. And we had done a poll. This is, man, 15 years ago. And just as a throwaway question in the poll, the question was, does the sun rise in the east or the west? And about 15% thought the sun rises in the west. So, yeah, uh, the... the We'll just leave it there. (laughs) I don't want to say too much here, but yeah. Yeah, I got an email from The Hill today, and I think WUNC did sort of a similar story saying Democrats are feeling pretty good with recent polling. We Mm -hmm. talked about that, but what if the polling is wrong like the last couple of years? And so there's some arguments about whether or not the polls are correct right now and how Democrats are excited in public and concerned in private and that may be a storyline we see yeah so this week i mean just to give a nod to fellow podcaster here in north carolina politics jeff tabiri over at wnc this week did a podcast on polling and the accuracy of polling it was a fascinating discussion folks should check it out Continuing in our campaign season talk, we've seen a lot of new ads this week, and boy, are they everywhere. This week, I'm watching the news with my wife in Cary, where we live, and I was shocked at the number of ads I really saw for Democrats. Senator Sidney Batch, who's running down in southwestern Wake County, ran three ads in one newscast, and then... Mary Bodie, who is running a little bit of Wake County up near Wake Forest, but it really goes into Granville County, had a negative ad, a couple negative ads against her opponent, E.C. Sykes. Now, again, this is Wake County. This is a Democratic stronghold. I told you last week about the anti-Michael Lee ads I saw down in New Hanover County. I was surprised. To Where else do you have houses that you're seeing ads? <laughs> That's it. That's it. I was surprised to see... General Assembly race ads this early in the cycle, we still have less than 60 days until the election. I think we start voting in about 30 days. We're talking big money to spend ads here in this Raleigh market. It is an expensive market. Last night, I saw on TV an anti-Wiley Nickel ad that was tough. (laughs) at best. And that came from a Republican sponsored group. So outside money, but it was harsh. Very much so. He is an attorney. I don't know what kind of law Senator Nickel practices, but it was essentially, are you a sex offender that wants to get off the sex offender list? Call Senator Nickel. And it really kind of made fun of these 
not only his practice and trying to disparage him, but defense attorneys in general that run these ads. It kind of had that feel to it. A very damning ad. I also saw negative ad. I think it was launched last week. We talked about at the U.S. Senate level, we were seeing some negative ads, but uh, one aimed at Sherry Beasley, and it has to do with the lobbying world. Oh, I haven't seen that. So she is saying that she doesn't take corporate PAC gifts and she doesn't take money from special interest groups or whatever, but then they tied her to her former employer because she was a partner at a law firm here in Raleigh that does lobbying. And I guess they have about three and a half million dollars in clients and just really tied her legal work to the lobbying side of that firm, really to undermine her message. Justice Beasley responds with her own negative ad tying Ted Budd and his family to some of the farmers in eastern North Carolina lost their land because, I don't know, I guess there were some foreclosures. The ad isn't exactly clear. All you get is that Ted Budd is anti-farmer, according to the Beasley campaign. Fun stuff. It's going to get dirtier (laughs) as we get closer. Yeah. You know who benefits? The TV stations. (laughs) They have got to be making money hand over fist. On Tuesday, Governor Cooper was talking about What do you think he was talking about? Well, he was talking about diet soda. We'll get to that later (laughs) in the podcast. You might be shocked. He was talking about Medicaid expansion. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. He is on message and again took the opportunity to encourage the General Assembly to come to some sort of deal. He said, we are this close. I'm holding my fingers together here. We're this close to a deal. It's starting to feel like the boy who cried wolf, though, because he keeps saying like, hey, the deal's going to be done in a week. Mm -hmm. Hey, we're this close. Like, It's starting to be like, "Mm, sir, I need to see receipts. So add on to that, Sky, that the General Assembly is coming in next week. You know, they very well have the ability to pass a Medicaid bill next week in some form or fashion but they're not going to do it. It's going to be a skeleton session. I'm just starting to think that maybe December, but I'm not even hopeful for December. Continuing the storyline about Medicaid expansion and sort of the way that the Senate and Cooper have turned on hospitals, Cooper included in his quote, I don't think it's unreasonable for the hospitals to step up and negotiate with Senator Berger. But he did also say that if the negotiations do not resume this month, that we will lose, the state will lose that access to the 2022 expansion money. And that's kind of what he and Berger have been talking about. You know, there's more money this year than ever before for expanding Medicaid. The governor also pitched a policy idea to the General Assembly this week for their consideration. Don't know how far it's going to go. Yeah, they love go. it when he pitches his own ideas. Yeah. What did he ask the General Assembly to do? So a few weeks back when the student loan forgiveness federal initiative happened, maybe a week or two later, we heard that, hey, if you're in North Carolina, that's still taxable income for your state taxes. And so essentially Governor Cooper said, hey, it shouldn't be taxed. And the General Assembly has the power to change the statute to ensure that folks aren't taxed for this. And he cited the PPP loans that came down from the federal government to many businesses, job-saving grants, essentially 
is what they were. He was saying, look, the General Assembly took that action for PPP recipients. They should do the same for those who had their student loans forgiven. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I do not think the General Assembly is going to buy this pitch from Governor Cooper. There seems to be a lot of pushback on student loan forgiveness as an issue. And then uh, take in the fact that they're just not going to take a proposal from Governor Cooper, as you pointed out. Unsubstantiated rumors. Yeah, what a segment this has become. <laughs> we have folks giving, calling us up, pulling us aside, getting text messages. They love the unsubstantiated rumors, and they have rumors to share with us. <laughs> That's the thing about politics. We all love a little gossip. <laughs> we do. So we've been talking about some prospective candidates up and down the ballot. Last week, we talked about the Democratic slate, and we talked about lieutenant governor. Who would run for lieutenant governor? We mentioned that Senator Sidney Batch is someone that we've heard that the Democratic leadership would like to see run for lieutenant governor in 2024. But then another name popped up this week, Representative Brian Turner, who is finishing up his career in the General Assembly, or at least for now, he's finishing it up. He's going back to Asheville, going to focus on his life in the private sector, but his name popped up as a possible candidate for lieutenant governor in 2024. So I sent him a text message, and I wanted to see, you know, what he thought about the idea or the rumor that he is running for lieutenant governor. So this is what I wrote to Representative Turner. Checking in with you to see if you have any comment on the possibility of a Brian Turner for lieutenant governor rumor. This is what he wrote. If I confirmed it, then your segment would have to be substantiated rumors. (laughs) So we're going to leave it there. But let's just add that to our back of the napkin possible roster. Sidney Batch, Brian Turner, Lieutenant Governor, time will tell. Also, you heard a rumor this week, or we saw it on Twitter, that we've talked a lot about the Valerie Jordan-Bobby Hannig race. And, you know, that just came to a head in a hearing at the State Board of Elections. And they did say that she could run. But we did hear that there is this idea out there that if Valerie Jordan wins, she will not be seated. So I got a call Friday about this. And the person talking to me said, I want you to go look up a Dallas Woodhouse tweet from last week. It was the week in which the State Board of Elections had made their decision about Valerie Jordan's residency. Dallas had put out on Twitter that, yeah, this could be appealed to the Senate if she is victorious in her race against Senator Hannig. The Senate could decide that they're not going to seat her for residence reasons. And it was cited that Speaker Nancy Pelosi had made a pronouncement about the Mark Harris victory down in the Congressional District 9 down in Charlotte. It got caught up into the whole harvesting of ballots and things like that, that Senator Berger or the leadership could make a similar pronouncement that they are going to look at 
Valerie Jordan's residency if she wins. I have put out some questions to some different folks that we kind of consider them historians of the General Assembly. Has this ever happened at the legislature? I have yet to get an answer, but it does bring up an interesting scenario in January. If, again, she does win, will they seat her? Also, a few weeks back, we talked about some different folks that could run against Josh Stein on the Democratic side for governor. And I had mentioned that I had heard Michael Regan. Well, last week, the Assembly broke a story saying that there's a lawsuit against Michael Regan. So the lawsuit stems from EPA Director Michael Regan's service as secretary over at the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality. There are allegations that there were some inappropriate words being used of racist terms and that there were some complaints and that then Secretary Regan swept some of this under the rug. Don't know if these this new development is in response to Director Regan being rumored as a gubernatorial candidate or not, but it is not a good look. And uh, we'll see how that plays out in the legal case. We'll also see how it plays out politically. I am very excited about our interview this week, Sky. We had Kyle Villamain, who is the founder and editor of The Assembly, which I am a big fan Stopped by the office this week, and we had a great conversation. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Kyle Villamain, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. I asked you what your official title was, and you said founder, CEO. I, it seems like you're a jack-of-all-trades for the assembly. Explain to us what your job is. What do you do? Uh, I hire smart people to do the things that are they're better at than me. Uh, but yeah, I founded the assembly about a year and a half ago, and uh, editor in chief, uh, but also charting its path forward as we build from a, a really small team to a, a quite big team. So the assembly is really taking NC poll by storm. We talk about it at the general assembly. You've had some great pieces. We were talking before we started recording the profile pieces I think have been spectacular. Senator Berger, Senator Bill Rabin. Can you talk about the assembly and how you're approaching journalism? It seems to me that you're going a lot deeper than what we're getting from our daily media. That's the idea. So we want to fill a gap that's not being filled. I was a speechwriter before I did this. So my, my focus is on uh, how do you make a story come alive and resonate with people while also adhering to the highest journalistic standards and breaking new information and, and bringing it to the, to the public light? So we wanted to build something that could do big enterprise stories, character-driven, profile-driven, paying good journalists good money to spend weeks or months on a big story instead of days. 
And there's a lot of really good journalists in North Carolina. We're just paying them to spend more time than they otherwise would get to spend. And it's, I think, showing results. Does it feel like when you had this idea and you were thinking through it, you were like, people were saying to you maybe, what are you thinking? This is not the time to get into another type of journalism. What kind of ideas did you wrestle with and thoughts did you wrestle with when trying to decide whether to do this? It was a bad idea that we made work. (laughs) (laughs) So it really first started summer, first pandemic summer. And I was... 2020. 2020. That's right. That's right. Uh, I had an apartment downtown Durham. Uh, It was empty. Uh, I was a speechwriter. No one was giving speeches, right? Well, (laughs) I had a little extra time on my hands. And in a previous life, I had worked for Margaret Spellings at the UNC system. And what struck me, you know, UNC and the UNC system is one of the best covered institutions in the state. At the time, um, Carrie Travis from Carolina Journal, Joe Killian from the Policy Watch, Jane Stansel was still covering uh, UNC for, for the NNO. Great journalists, but there were still so many higher ed stories that were not being covered. And you know, if that's the best covered institution or one of the best covered institutions, um, what else is happening that we don't know about, right? right? And here I am, you know, saying things that journalists already know, but I thought, okay, North Carolina is a big enough state, a, a, I think a mature state, a state that deserves a kind of institution that can go deep on it. And I had very little to lose and enough uh, misplaced bravado that I thought, you know, let's, let's give it a shot. And kept talking to people and saying, can we build this kind of thing? And enough people didn't say no. Or, you know, a couple people said, hmm, that's not the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right. And so we launched and um, really just put something out there and people said, yeah, we want more. And so we did more. So let's talk about you a little bit. Where are you from? What made you get into journalism? Yeah. So my uh, parents are not from North Carolina. My mom's from California and my dad's from Illinois. Uh, I was born in Georgia and uh, then grew up in Carborough. Mm -hmm. I was in that Carborough Chapel Hill bubble. I probably went out of state more often than I went to Raleigh. That bubble was pierced after college. I, I went to Chapel Hill Um, but then took my first job. It was in politics up in New Hampshire and I came back down and and started working at at UNC Chapel Hill and realized the state is a heck of a lot bigger than, you know, the 30 miles that I had really lived in. Did you write for the daily, daily Tario? No, I was a student government kid. Were you? Yeah. Yeah. So my senior year, I was VP uh, at UNC and was always a kid telling everyone else that, uh, we should talk to journalists and, uh, you know, much to their chagrin. And, uh, but no, I, I never, I'd always ridden, you know, I guess rode in, in high school and, um, but didn't think that I was going to go into journalism and very much saw my future in politics. I was on a campaign in 2016 up in New Hampshire and just decided that that wasn't exciting. It felt uninspired, um, great candidate, but just didn't really drive me. Take us into how you got into being a speechwriter. Like, I don't know anybody who's like, oh yeah, my former life, I was a speechwriter. <laughs> right. Like, was it the West Wing? What was it? Yeah. Uh, Sam Seaborn, right? He was a speechwriter for... more like Toby, I think. I don't know oh, the looks of Sam, okay. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A little more, a little more grumpy, a little more cynical. Okay. We're aging ourselves here <laughs> on the podcast today. <laughs> Yeah, I became a speechwriter by pure chance. I had known Carol Folt a little bit when I was in student government. I knew her team. 
they needed another another body, another warm body that could write things. Um, and so I moved into a deputy role there right after the campaign. They, they reached out and said, hey, we, we need someone. You know, about a year there. And then uh, Margaret, Margaret's team reached out and said, we need a speechwriter and, and uh, we think you'd be good. So I joined her and, you know, a good speechwriter is is more of a thought organizer than anything else. Mm-hmm. The words you write matter less than the structure you help put them in. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you're really good at speech writing, then you're able to help a principal think through their thoughts and then channel them in a, in a way. But, you know, it's not about how good of prose you can write. But there are a lot of parallels to editing journalists, right? Because my current job, uh, in part, is about taking really good raw copy and, and, and transforming it into something that is compelling to, to the reader. And that's the same kind of thing you're doing as a speechwriter. So give us your 15, 30 second compelling argument on why folks should subscribe or what you're doing at the assembly that you believe is different. We go deeper. We give the best form of the argument. And you're going to come away knowing things you didn't know before. Uh, you're going to come away um, with actionable intel. And um, you're going to know the state better than you knew it. There's a lot of journalism that cannot be said of because it's just what happened yesterday, not the backstory, right? Or uh, it's the same 800 words that was said last week with an extra sentence at the top. And that's not a knock on the journalist quality, right? It's just the structure. And so what we try to do is when we write a story, um, we're going to have new things in there. We're going to have things that are fresh and compelling and that give you give you some insight. And so uh, it's the best $4 that you're, you're ever going to spend a month. It's, I think, a pretty darn good product. It is a great product. And I, let's get to that $4 a month. I thought it was three. Well, you, you've been grandfathered in. Yeah, oh, have I? Congratulations. Oh, thank you. All right. So I'm paying $3 a month for the assembly, and I'm getting a couple emails a week. I'm getting long-form journalism. I don't understand how I'm getting such a good product at <laughs> such a good price. Well, we are not, what do you call it, profitable? Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we, we, we've got a, a long-term play. Here. Okay. And the idea is we want 10,000, 20,000 folks in North Carolina paying us every month for really good news. And, you know, right now, I think we've got something like 2,300 paid subscribers, another 20,000 who get our newsletter. They're the people who, who matter in this state. Um, it's a great audience. We need to grow it more. And we're, you know, we're, we're doing that. But I think what is so striking to me is that you don't have to have a huge audience to support good journalism. One of the things that we have the luxury of that other outlets don't is that we are not covering breaking news every day. If you give us 10 journalists, we don't have to send them out to um, cover the daily. So we're able to, to send those folks to go deep and provide you the one or two big enterprise stories a week that differentiate us. But we don't have to have a team of 100 to do that. And so we don't have to pay a team of 100 to, to do that. And, you know, we can make this whole thing work with, with 20,000 folks statewide in a state of 10.5 million paying us a couple bucks a month. It, it helps that we're independent and here and we don't have to give 20% of our business up the chain. And it helps that a lot of our overhead is just bare thin. Let's talk about that. How big is your staff over at the Assembly? We're a team of five right now, plus a freelance base of, gosh, 
probably have 40 or 50 uh, folks who who, who have ridden for us and another 40 or 50 uh, photographers and, and illustrators. So there's a lot of really good talent. We've tapped, tapped into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are hiring um, another set of reporters this fall. I have interviews right after this. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And, we'll do those uh, on the podcast. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> but, you know, we, I stated my intention to, to build a about a 30-person newsroom. So that's our goal over the next few years. Will it be a physical newsroom or all virtual? We, we've got uh, some space downtown Durham that okay. we are in right now. But it is important to me that we are not a triangle outlet. Right. So we, uh, we, we are going to make some investments in places like Wilmington, Greensboro, Asheville, Rocky Mount, Fayetteville, placing folks on the ground there who are uh, very good at what they do. Right? We're going to pay well. We're going to get great talent. And we're going to find local stories that matter to a statewide audience and take our statewide stories and make them matter to a local audience. If the media world becomes a place where Charlotte and Raleigh get great news and nothing else, we, we failed, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, we really have to spread the wealth, the journalistic wealth. It's just a boring set of stories if everything is about two counties. So let's dig into that a little bit. You said you want to take the statewide news and make it applicable to local folks. Mm-hmm. And I've read some other interviews with you where you talk a lot about power and how you want to dig into power, who has it, how they get it sort of thing. Do you have a concern that your average North Carolinian maybe doesn't care about the backstory? And how do you get them to care? You're right that they may not care. Okay. That's okay. Mm. We, we don't have to be everything to everyone. Brian, listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we, don't need, we don't need 5 million people uh, reading us every day uh, to matter. We have to be a place that you can go if you want to understand what's happening in the state. And if that means an audience of 100,000, that's a huge win. One of the pieces you did, I mentioned it earlier, was about Senator Rabin and the medical marijuana bill that he pushed in the last biennium. Senator Rabin went on the record to talk about why medical marijuana was so important to him. He talked about his, his own cancer. He talked about a friend. Senator Rabin doesn't do a lot of interviews, period. But to have him sit down and really open up on a personal level was pretty intriguing. I'm curious as to how the assembly is positioning itself. Legislators seem to be embracing the assembly. It's it's about trust and about that um, we are going to report hard and we have thrown punches that have landed. But we are not going to take cheap shots. We are not going to throw punches just to one side of the aisle. Uh, North Carolina is an interesting state with people in power from many different backgrounds, and people with power do good and bad things. You know, we have taken great pains to be a place that will report about how North Carolina is and do it fairly, do it from a place of curiosity. I think people have responded to that. Brian, you, you said this on an earlier podcast. I was listening up on, on you before I got here, of course, as a good journalist should. You were talking about how it, it takes so long to build a reputation in the General Assembly, and, and it's, it can go away so quickly. Mm-hmm. We know the same thing. Um, the nature of journalism is that we will lose friends. Just there will be attrition, right? There's no way to do this job and not piss people off, and that's mm-hmm. okay. As long as we are doing our darndest to build trust elsewhere. How is the journalism community in North Carolina responding to the assembly? Well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Broadly speaking. It's a competitive market. Yeah. You know, I think there's two two types of outlets in the state. 
outlets that are kind of focused on growing a pie and outlets that are focused on keeping a share of the pie. And luckily, most outlets in North Carolina do see it as an expanding market. And that means they're very collaborative based. They're um, going to cite other sources. And you know, when someone breaks something, they, they nod to it. Axios is a great example here in, in Axios Raleigh and Axios Charlotte. They're always going to highlight other outlets' great work. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. We try to do that religiously in our in our newsletter because if you're positioning yourself as a place that readers can come to and get the best information then it, it behooves you to to point to others and nod to others so, so broadly speaking the media system is media world has responded well and you know individual journalists have responded great let's talk about the journalists you use i know a few of them i've read their bylines and other newspapers they've written in john drescher being someone who writes for you who edits for us okay i'd like to if you could give us a little peek uh, behind the curtain of how it works is a reporter bringing you a story and saying kyle i'd really like to work on this are you distributing assignments how how, how does that work it's, it's a mix of, of what we call pitching, you know, pitches that come in and commissioning okay. that, that we, we push out. We've got a, a really wide set of freelancers, some of whom we go back to multiple times because we think they're a great fit for a story that's coming up. Um, but we get a lot of pitches, and we still get a lot of pitches. New folks are writing for us each month. It's a mix of folks like Jim Morrill and Tim Funk and uh, Pam Kelly. I'm thinking Charlotte right now, but you know these these veteran journalists who have um, done amazing work for for decades, who are now in a place where it's really exciting to be able to dig into a story for a month and on on their terms and on their pace. We've got a number of kind of younger, um, earlier career folks who. Uh, have proven their chops and now are you know doing bigger meteor stories and and we're a great fit for that. And I'll be honest, the place we need to grow is there are a lot of, a lot of great journalists who who are mid career who are always going to be in full time jobs and mm-hmm. so that's who we're going after after now and you know we'll be building up more full time reporters so that uh, they can carve out their beats, build their sourcing uh, you know deeply, and we can bring some talent back to the state. Is that hard to do to carve out a beat in a freelance structure, though? In a freelance structure, it is. It is. So you want to bring them on staff. That's right. That's wow. right. So this fall, we'll make our first set of full-time reporter hires. And those folks will you know, be with us 40 hours a week, 50, 60 hours a week, and really carve out their beat. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about this long-term vision you see, let's say, 10 years from now. What, what, what is the assembly doing? You gonna play this back in ten years? And, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I hope so okay, yeah. So we we want to be statewide, right, okay. and truly statewide. We are looking at seven bureaus across the state that are based in cities and regions that you know are, are deeply partnered with other existing media outlets there. You know that uh, push out uh, daily or weekly newsletters that that you can. You know, if you want to know Wilmington and, and know the Cape Fear, you know, th- this can be a one-stop shop for you. Uh, we want to have standalone issue verticals, I'm using quotation marks, that are you know, healthcare, higher ed, courts, things that are germane to your job, that, that give you actionable intel that helps you professionally, uh, but that also produces really interesting deep dive stories that you don't have to be a DA to, to care about. Uh, so we're going to try to just straddle that line. We're going to always write for a, um, a smart, savvy audience. 
Uh, we're always going to write uh, to break news and give context. And we're going to write about power and place. And I think, you know, we're just going to figure out ways that that can become self-sustaining and independent and not be reliant on any single source of anything, right? Authority or finances or, or what have you. So there was a time not too long ago, but there was a time when, you know, your Sunday paper, you could hardly get a rubber band around it. I was a paper boy as a kid. Journalism has gotten thinner. The newspaper has literally gotten thinner, if not gone away. You have newsrooms that are contracting. We have layoffs and buyouts. But here you are surging and you have this vision. You are embracing, I, I feel, kind of that long-form journalism of, of a generation ago. I would push back on, on journalism's struggles, right? Okay. There are certainly some. But you look at a place like the NNO, still has 72,000 paid subscribers. That's a great base. The trick with the NNO is that they have to do so many things, and so it's hard. They're stretched thin. But you can build a heck of a newsroom with, with that kind of base. And um, RAL is you know doing well, and they've got, they're growing their team. There are lots of examples out there of success, and there's no reason we can't build one more success here in, in North Carolina. You're not a nonprofit model, are you? No, we are not. No, no, we're not. <laughs> not in the we're not. literal I mean, we, sense. We, <laughs> yeah, we're not making a profit right now. But <laughs> um, no, we, we raise money from investors uh, through year one and well, really um, through this, this summer. We are raising philanthropic money. Basic idea is that we, we know what we want to become, right? This big newsroom that uh, is doing, doing great statewide work. Um, we know to get there, we need bridge capital, right? This kind of middle chunk. We don't want to raise a bunch of debt. So we're turning to the community and saying, hey, we need to raise three million or so. Um, this is what we're going to going to build. And here's the, the, the fiscal sponsor that's going to help us get there. So we're, we're having a great response from folks and we'll continue raising money for the next forever. <laughs> okay. Not not until we until we hit the place we want to hit. Sure. You also have a transparency in your communications to your subscribers that I really appreciate. So I think it was the beginning of the year. Time's kind of fleeting right now for me. But you talk about, hey, this is what we're doing. We're going to stop and we're doing some hires and things like that. And at first I thought, well, this is curious. They're telling us what's going on back in the newsroom. <laughs> but then as I would get your newsletter, I, I, I was kind of bought in. Like, I wonder what happened about those hires. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about your decision to kind of share some of the machinations of the assembly with your readers? I think I just didn't want to lie, right? I mean, like we're we're scrappy and um, <laughs> we've had our, had to have our struggles, we have our successes, and um, why not just be super open with it? Um, I, I do think that it has built a community of people who are on this journey with us. We are very open that we don't know if we have the right answer; we just have a answer, and we're inviting people to to help us shape that think you'll ever do a hard copy edition of the assembly in some form or fashion only if you put it on your coffee table exclusively <laughs> just, just for you okay all right i mean do, do you think we should i don't know we we've thought about kind of a year-end mm -hmm. or, or even quarterly type print uh product you know we, we just need money, Brian. <laughs> we just need money. So there are lots of things that we want to try. We, we need more capital. We'll probably do something this winter that will be hard copy. Um, we'll make sure you, you, you get a, a dozen. Yeah, mm -hmm. we'll buy it. Good. 
good. Yeah. So if someone wants to be able to read or subscribe or learn more, how can they do that? Yep, we're online at theassemblync.com. Everyone can read uh, two articles a month for free, and then it's $4 a month after that um, if you want full access. And, and we are grateful when you want full access. I have another question. How did you decide on the name The Assembly? I was quarantined um, in Durham at this Airbnb um, because uh, of, a, of a COVID scare and, and uh, just was pacing the apartment for about two weeks, uh, actually right around the election, right around 2020 election, and uh, kept coming up with really bad names. Tell us. Well, just every, <laughs> you know, every state symbol logo thing yeah. was put in a, in a different formation with another word. They are all bad. Uh-huh. Um, what we want to build is a place where smart people come together and think hard about their state, right? We want to assemble the different pieces of North Carolina, uh, the people and the ideas and the institutions that make this thing up, uh, and put it in a place that can be interrogated and inspected and understood. And so this is about creating that assembly for the state. That's what we want to do, so let's run with it. And mm-hmm. the rest is in history. So... I know that you said that you've listened to the podcast, so you know this is coming, but if you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in North Carolina politics or North Carolina media, I'll open that up for you. Um, what <laughs> would that be? Thing to open up. <laughs> I, I think process openness is just so striking, you know, how, how closed so many processes are. It takes a heck of a lot of sourcing to figure out the ball is even in motion. So the amount of resources that you have to expend just to know the door should be tried to pry, you know, that you should try to pry the door open is is huge. And so, I mean, I think as a good journalist, I should just say transparency. Mm -hmm. It just, um, and and it's reflected in the newsletter, right? We try to be really transparent in in the, the sausage making and not just the end result. I mean, it's one thing to tell everyone you know, here's what I decided and here's why it's good or bad. And, and that's a good form of transparency. But you really got to tell people when you're st- still thinking it through. Okay. Otherwise, the ship sailed. And so I would love a state that really opens up on the process side just a little bit more. Well, Kyle Villamain, founder and editor-in-chief of The Assembly. We appreciate everything you are doing covering North Carolina, North Carolina politics, You certainly know how to do journalism better. You know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. After he left, we were really intrigued by his vision for the future and the way that he sees North Carolina and the folks that are his readers. Like he wasn't worried about folks that needed things in little clips, you know, your social media of everything. He wants people who are interested in long form stories. It was so interesting. It really was. We wish him well hearing about his business model 
it sounds like there's a lot of vision. There's a lot of things that need to fall into place. But bottom line, you can help the assembly by subscribing. Visit their website. DM us. We can help connect you with Kyle. But it's a great online magazine to subscribe to. Tweet Tweet of of the week. week. So, Sky, this week we had two nominations. Good nominations. (laughs) Very good. They got multiple nominations. We had people texting us, DMing us, even just tagging us on Twitter like, this should be Tweet of the Week this week. And we're going to mention both of them. First one was Governor Roy Cooper, kind of a rare moment in which Travis Fain caught him on video. And I'll tell you, it it was just a delight to listen to. So it's, again, from Travis Fain. He's at Travis Fain. And he, it appears this video had over 31,000 views. So I will just play it for you. I'm rolling, you know, I'm, I'm constantly having to say, I'm just got to stop. It's hard to explain. So Mountain Dew, I'm, I'm like a diet soda sommelier. So, so it, it, the, the, the Mountain Dew is sweeter than Diet Sundarp. Diet Sundarp has a little bit more of a tart taste. It, Christy. <laughs> yeah, we don't really see Governor Cooper kind of just hanging out and talking about soda. Mm, joking around. Yeah, it was really good. Nice moment. It was. I think he nailed it between Sundrop and Mountain Dew. Sounds like he is a Sundrop fan. He like I don't know. He, he says it's tart. Do you, you think know? that? Yeah, I don't really do the diet soda. Well, you just said he nailed it. So how do you know that he nailed it if you don't do it? Well, you like full fat. So I like full fat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do the diet. If I'm drinking a Mountain Dew. I'm Are you drinking a, a Mountain Dew? Mountain Dew. No, I'm not. But if I if I'm going to drink, I'm not drinking diet. Okay. I mean, that's it's just that's just wrong. It's just wrong. It's it's like a brownie with no sugar. Well, do you drink Sundrop? Yeah, I like I like Sundrop. That means no, people. That means he doesn't. I, I'm pretty. Drink it. I, Attack him, please. I'm a Coca Cola. If I'm going to drink Coca Cola or Dr Pepper, that those are my two sodas, and I'm not drinking diet. I wish we had more moments from Governor Cooper like this. I, th- I I would really like to see more of that. Definitely. Keep the keep the cameras going, Travis. <laughs> We'd like to see Governor Cooper letting his hair down a little bit. But we had a second nomination, and this is from our friend Matt Balance, firefighter up in Asheville. He is chairman of the 11th Congressional District for the Democrats, and he had kind of a odd interaction this weekend they were putting on a gala in western north carolina talk about that tweet so it's a tweet thread it's not just one tweet i believe there are many but it does describe his interaction running into senator richard burr at the democratic gala in Asheville. matt is setting up for the gala for the western north carolina democrats he sees a guy in the lobby, with no socks on, watching his phone, he figures out that it is Senator Richard Burr who's there for a wedding. Richard Burr is catching the App State game, and they start talking and kind of have a fun moment realizing that Matt's there for the Democrats. Obviously, Senator Burr is a Republican. The conversation ensues. Matt says for about 15 minutes... 
He meets Brooke, Senator Burr's wife, and then Senator Burr helps him hang a banner for the gala that night. Nice moment. Definitely. We're really with the uplifting tweets of the week. It got a lot of play, this tweet thread. It was in Politico. A lot of people talked about how Senator Burr is a nice man. Very nice. Now, we put it on Twitter, retweeted it, said there's a lot to learn here. And, you know, we had a lot of folks tweet at us all of the human failings of Senator Burr. We appreciate everyone reminding us how human uh, we all are in our mistakes. But I think it was a great moment. And Matt, obviously, is a partisan. Appreciate him sharing that story. It's a good story. I watched the App State game this weekend. Great upset against Texas A&M. It started a debate here in the office this week. Although I did watch oh, the Oh gosh. Yeah. Okay. I watched the App State game. And I'll watch football now and again, but, but can we just go ahead and say, can we all agree? I know. I already know what you are about to say and we cannot all agree. College football is nothing but preseason football it is minor so, league oh, no, baseball no, no, no. stop it is it is insignificant it is oh so now anti- you're attacking minor league baseball players i'm just this saying man hates the, people who work their way up from the bottom no i appreciate that college football players are putting the work in what i'm saying is is your season means nothing because it's all the way the whole thing is structured in college football okay but anti-american you like, but you anti-american yes what? I stand by this. What's more American than football, college football? We don't have winners. All we do is play games. You still win and lose games. You have a record. What is we don't have winners But what mean? does the record mean? Okay, so let's back up. Let's but back you up. like college basketball. Yes, because we have a tournament. Everyone's playing to qualify. How, okay, then what's your solution for the playoffs? I, I don't have a solution for football, the bowl series, the playoffs. So you tell me what that solution is. If college football wants to be serious about its season. But every different conference does have a championship. So how would all of your games mean nothing to you? You have to have one champion standing at the end of the season that is not generated by some computer algorithm. You do have that. It's generated by a computer algorithm. No, it's not. There's there's no question. Look, here, I'm not an Alabama fan or whatever, but their football team is superior to most other football teams in the country. So that's why they always win. It's not a computer algorithm. It is. All right. So let's use Alabama as a good example. This weekend, I watched them play Texas. Texas is unranked. Texas almost had them beat up until the fourth quarter, the end of the fourth quarter, Alabama was going down in flames. Here's the thing, Texas being unranked, They could go undefeated this season. They have no shot at being a national champion because the computer algorithm and the sports writers would never put them in those top four teams that get to play for the championship. They don't qualify because of who they are. You're making multiple arguments at the same time. Pick an argument and stick to that. We need a national championship. And this is my solution. So is your your argument that college football means nothing, that it is warm-ups for the NFL, or is your argument that there needs to be one champion because you're making two? This is what I'm saying. Because they don't have a championship, 
I find the college football season. Now, I like college football, the playing of it, but we need something like Division Two football has, where they field 28 teams. I don't know about Division Two. Starting in November, they play a tournament style that is similar to what we know the NCAA basketball tournament to be. They take their 28 top teams, put them in a pool, and they do a bracket. So you're all saying Division Two isn't worthless like you're That's saying right. divi- you're saying division one is worthless That's division right. two is not you have to have a champion and we don't have a true champion now 85 percent of americans want a true playoff series so thanksgiving weekend you came with statistics yeah i have it right here <laughs> gallup poll i'm reading it imagine this guy thanksgiving weekend we have selection sunday and we come to a champion that allows App State to compete for a championship, that allows for NC State to compete for a championship, that allows Illinois. Illinois, you could go undefeated this season. You guys will not qualify to be in any sort of meaningful postseason play. Yeah, yeah the Rose Bowl. That's a pretty meaningful season, yeah. postseason player game. But you might get, some team out there might like get to the Meineke Bowl or the Hellman's Mayonnaise Bowl or, you know, the corn dog bowl, where everyone gets a corn dog after they win. That sounds fun. How about having a tournament that captures our imagination, where an underdog gets red hot and plays through and has a shot at winning a championship? How long would that take? It would take a long time. The Division Two takes about a month. I think this is an evergreen argument. People make it every year, you know. What I take issue with is not the argument about the end of the season having a winner. I'm fine with that. What I take issue with is this is not what you said the other day, actually. What you said the other day was, I don't really like college football. Right. And the reason I don't like it is because it's there's no point in it. Right. So what if I said the App State game this weekend, we're not going to keep score. We're just going to have a computer tell us at the end of four quarters which team was the best. They're going to go on points scored. They're going to go on how well you played on defense. They're going to go on how uh, your passing yardage, your rushing yardage. But we're not going to pay attention to the score. We're just going to have this algorithm tell us who won the game. That's how I feel at the end of a college football season. I don't really think that the top four teams are the best teams. I think that someone told us they were the best teams. I think that you have to, a tournament determines a true champion. I know why you want this. It's because you get inspired by underdogs and you like a little underdog story and that's what you're looking for. That's what you found in App State the other day. That's what you're looking for in life. And that's what you want to see. And you don't like that the same people win. Is that true or false? Very true. Very true. And so here's the thing. Uh, Let's use App State for an example. App State could have won against UNC. Should have won that game, by the way. They just beat Texan A&M. They could go the rest of the season undefeated. The rest of the, they could blow out every single team on their schedule. They still will be in some crappy bowl game that no one cares about in December. We hope that 
you have had a restful week. You take some time to sit down this week. I think the temperatures are lowering a bit. Sit down, watch some football. We appreciate you listening, giving us feedback, reviews, five stars. We appreciate all of that. And we will meet you again, same place, same time next week. But until then, please remember to do politics better. So I d- we didn't do this for you specifically, <laughs> but today's article quotes Danny Brett. Does it really? So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Brett gets a quote. That's good. Well, we got quoted in the assembly in that Bill Raymond piece, I believe. Yeah, we right. Well, the that. best pieces quote. Yeah. Love it. We, should fr- <laughs> we should frame that.